Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. All right, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for yet another day, another week to come together as community to dive into your word. We pray, Lord, that you would allow this word, your word, to speak to us. We pray, Jesus, in all the ways that we are experiencing doubt, difficulty, discomfort, suffering, anxiety, worry, all the ways we struggle to trust you, to know your will, to overcome sin. We pray, Lord, that you would remove those worries and ailments from us over this next hour so that we can be focused of mind and of heart completely on your voice and how you're speaking to us through your scriptures and through one another. Guide us during this time and illuminate for each one of us the specific message you have in store for, for us. You knew each one of us would be here and you're intending full well to speak to each one of us tonight. So help us to be open and ready to receive. Guide our study, our time together, our discussion, and allow it always to be fruitful. We offer this time to you. We lay it at your feet, as well as our entire lives, and ask that you bless each one of us in the ways we most need. We pray all of this in your most precious name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come on in. Welcome. We're in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the fifth Sunday of Easter. And we are jumping from where we were last week, the gospel you heard yesterday in John chapter 10, which is kind of towards the, the middle or end of Jesus's ministry. And uh, if, if you don't know this about the gospel of John, it's in two chunks. And the first chunk of John, uh, John chapters 1 through 12, is called the Book of Signs. And it circles around seven prominent signs that Jesus performs in his public ministry over the span of three years. So it's a very quick snapshot of these main signs that Jesus performs to show that he is the Son of God. In John chapter 13, it's called the Book of Glory from that point forward. And that is basically the last week of his life. So you have three years of his life in 12 chapters and then one week of his life in the following eight chapters. So it's a very zoomed in, very detailed focus on these last moments of Jesus' life. The part we're reading tonight is from the middle of the Last Supper discourses in John. So in John, we have a unique version of the Last Supper, where yes, they celebrate the Last Supper, but John zooms in on, on the details of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and then offering these final teachings. And so we're beginning at the very uh, start of these teachings he's offering, his last set of teachings to the disciples on the night before he is to die. So that's where we are in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. So first time through, just get that picture in your mind. They're in the upper room, Jesus and the disciples. They've just celebrated the Last Supper. He's just washed their feet. He just, he's just announced that someone is going to betray him, and now he's beginning his final teaching. So first time through, just visualize this if you are able. The Last Supper Discourses, John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God. Have faith also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself so that where I am, you also may be. Where I am going, you know the way. Thomas said to him, Master, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, then you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Master, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you for so long a time, and still you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me is doing his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe because of the works themselves. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and will do greater ones than these because I am going to the Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this one more time, as we always do. This time I invite you to listen and focus predominantly on the words as they are being read. And try to not let any now images kind of be explored or distract you from the words that are being spoken. And pay particular attention if any word or phrase stands out to you or resonates with you personally for any reason. It doesn't have to be to theologically interpret the text in some intellectual way. It could be the most insignificant word or detail, but for some reason it sparks a memory, a thought, it resonates with you, something going on in your own life. Pay attention to those things and begin to reflect on them. What is the Lord saying to me through this particular word or phrase? So second and final time through John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God. Have faith also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you also may be. Where I am going, you know the way. Thomas said to him, Master, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, then you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Master, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you for so long a time and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me is doing his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe because of the works themselves. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and will do greater ones than these, because I am going to the Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to reflect back over those things that have stood out to you, and as well as any details that maybe resonated with you or sparked any questions. If you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know, however, uh, what those things are. But for those of us here, we're going to take about the next 10 minutes to share at your tables what stood out to you and why, what questions did this reading pose in you, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and sharing. So take the next 10 minutes. So a few things about this passage. As I said, this is happening immediately after Jesus is delivering a lot of not great news. So if you see in ver verse uh, 21 of chapter 13, um, it says, Jesus was deeply troubled and testified, Amen, amen, I say to you, um, one of you will betray me. And then a few verses later in verse 33, My children, I will be with you only a little while longer. And then in verse 38, Amen, amen, I say to you, the cock will not crow before you deny me three times. So Jesus is pronouncing a reminder of the fact that someone's going to betray him, he's going to die, and the leader that he has set up 
among the apostles, the one that he has given special authority to, who he set apart, Peter, is going to deny him. This is not good news. And so that's why he begins his discourses with the statement, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God. Have faith also in me. He's talking to a people, the Jewish people, who have heard story after story in generation after generation of their history of how people have suffered immensely. And yet, when they turned to God, when they were obedient to him, God came through. So even despite seeming like they were up, up against insurmountable odds, terrible enemies, destruction of their empire, destruction of their temple, complete removal from their homes and their heritage, being brought into slavery in Egypt or exile in Babylon, as long as they had faith in God, they were delivered. And so Jesus is asking them to have the same faith in him. And he says later, if you don't believe me based on what I say, believe because of the works, because just like God showed you great works throughout salvation history, appearing before you shrouded as a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, leading you out of slavery from Egypt, look at all of the signs that I have performed and see that no one else but God could do these things. That is the primary emphasis of the Gospel of John. At the time of the Gospel of John, it was being written a little bit later after the other three Gospels had been written, and there was confusion about the nature of Jesus. Was Jesus a man who had somehow at some point in his life been given divine ability? Was Jesus' humanity to be downplayed, to upplay his, his divinity? And so John is a theological discourse in the divinity of Jesus, trying to set forth and explain Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's not just the Messiah, like Matthew asserts. He's not just a, a, a king of kings greater than the emperor in Rome, like Mark asserts. He's not just someone who's coming to save the whole world, Gentiles and Jews included, like Luke asserts. He's all of those things, but especially he is the son of God. There's a great argument by C.S. Lewis that when you see the things here that Jesus is arguing, he's arguing divinity. He's saying, I am God. And usually when people talk like this nowadays, we think they're psychos. And so C.S. Lewis says, he makes this argument, um, aut deus aut malus homo in Latin, which means he is either God or he is a bad man. Those are the only two things you can logically believe about Jesus because the things he claims are either true and he's God, or he's lying, and the things he claims are so audacious, then you cannot just accept that he's a good teacher. He has to be malicious. So he's either God or he's a bad man. And John, his entire gospel, is trying to point to the fact that look at all these signs, look at all these supernatural things that Jesus has done. See those as evidence of now all of these very difficult, audacious claims that someone would have to make in front of a Jewish audience who would consider pretty much every other sentence in this discourse from chapters 14 to 17 is blasphemy. That Jesus is claiming he is God. And he does this earlier. In John 10, 30, he says, the Father and I are one. In John 10, 36, he's talking about the Pharisees who want to come after him, saying that he blasphemed because he said, I am the Son of God. So John is like, he's not splitting hairs. He's trying to explicitly declare that Jesus is arguing that he is divine. He is God himself, sent as the Son of God to die for our sins and to allow us to share in God's divinity, to restore us as divine sons and daughters like we were originally in the Garden of Eden. If you look in the Catechism for the Four Reasons for the Incarnation, this paragraphs 457 to 460 of the Catechism, the last reason is kind of like weird Catholic language, but it says, Jesus became man so that we could become partakers of the divine nature. And it's using language from, from first or second Peter. But what that means is basically Jesus became man so man could become God or could become like God, meaning we could be caught up into intimacy with God where there's no barrier, no separation like it was before sin. And one of the other reasons that Jesus became man is to give us an example of holiness. So there's things that Jesus does, like he goes aside to himself and pray and prays. He does that to show us that we are supposed to go aside on our own and pray. And so in this, Jesus is talking about his relationship with God the Father. 
He's saying, the Father who dwells in me is doing his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There's unique intimacy, this connection. And later on, after this passage, a few verses later in verse 20, yes, he says, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I in you. So what he's doing here is he's setting up an argument and saying, I am the example to follow. Look at me to know how humanity should come before God. And then I am also God. I am so intimately connected with the Father that you, if you come to me, and if you see that I am the way, the truth, and the life, you can be that intimately connected with God too. You can repair what was broken by sin and relive in that intimacy that God has promised you. That is the language that's being used here. I talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about the the linen that was rolled up in the tomb. You remember that? Um, This language here, I referenced this verse. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place to you, for you. And what this is, is marital imagery. This is marital language. Because remember, at this time, if two people were betrothed to be married, they didn't get married right away. What the husband would do, the future husband, he would go and build or secure a home for him and his bride. And the wedding would begin when the bridegroom would return to the house of the bride with all of his family and the wedding party and would take the bride, who was then escorted by him and her family following, and they would all go to their bridal home where the bride and groom would consummate their marriage in their home with all of their friends and family surrounding their home. And there was no noise-canceling headphones. There was no windows and doors, okay? But this was a community that celebrated this type of marital intimacy. And then what usually happened is there would be a big week-long celebration. And at one point in that moment, uh, after the couple had consummated their, their marriage, the father of the bride would go into the bed and would take the linen from the bed to prove the virginity of his daughter, usually because there was some evidence of that on the linen. I won't get into detail, but you can figure that out. And so... What I argued was, in the moment of the resurrection, where the linen cloth is rolled up and it's bloodied, and Jesus, at the end of his crucifixion, says, says, it is finished, in Latin, consummatum es, it is consummated. What he's doing is he's proposing marital language to us and saying that I desire intimacy with you. I am going to prepare a home for you. I am the bridegroom. You are the bride. I want to be so connected to you that I'm going to lay down my life sacrificially just like a husband and wife do at an altar on their wedding day. And they live that out each and every day in their marriage. I am going to go and prepare this place for you so that when I come back, when I come back, I can take you to myself. And that is the intimacy that we are promised. That's why the Catholic Church teaches that marriage is a foretaste of heaven. The sacrament of matrimony is theologically described as a foretaste of heaven. The love and intimacy in a holy Catholic marriage, sacramental marriage, is the closest glimpse that we can have of the intimacy in heaven. And that is why the devil attacks marriage so viciously. You want to know what's precious and what's valuable in this world? Look at what is most attacked and falling apart. Marriage, family, Catholicism, all of the values associated with those things, they're belittled, they're looked down upon, they're described as antiquated, that we need to progress beyond them. Those are the things that the devil is afraid of. Because in those things lies the intimacy that God invites us into, the imagery of what heaven is really like. And so in this passage, brothers and sisters, we have an invitation that even in our doubts, even in our worries, even in the worst news or on the worst day of your life, Jesus is coming to you and me and saying, I am already preparing a place for you. This, what's going on right now, this is not what your life is about. This is not all there is. I have already consummated this union and I am just preparing this place. I'm coming back to take it to myself so you can experience the fullness, the joy of what it means to be in intimate relationship with me for all eternity. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so when the apostles don't understand, he's like, I've told you. I've told you that I'm going to die. Do you not get it? Do you not get it? And when Philip says, show us the Father, what he wants, he wants a big visible sign of God like in the Old Testament. 
like a pillar of fire and smoke, leading them out of slavery from Egypt, like the presence of God descending down from the heavens upon the temple and filling the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's what Philip is asking for. I want the sign. I want the tangible evidence. And Jesus is saying, were you not there at the wedding when I turned water to wine? Were you not there when I healed the paralytic? Were you not there when I multiplied the loaves? Were you not there when I walked on water? Were you not there when I raised Lazarus, when I healed the blind man? All of these signs that he performed, do you not see? Do you not see this would be impossible if God was not at work and if he did not send me? And then he ends with what I call the most terrifying verse in all of the Bible. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and will do even greater ones than these. You thought those were impressive. When you have the Holy Spirit, which he's about to promise in the following passage, you will be able to do even greater, more supernatural things for the glory of God. Not for your own glory, but for the glory of God. Because when two people come together in intimate union, as we do when we're close to God, it bears supernatural fruit. Just like when a husband and wife come together in intimate union, it bears literal fruit that you name nine months later. That life, that abundance that is experienced in that type of intimate relationship is what we have the spiritual equivalent of, what we're being invited into every single time we come to Mass, every single time we pray, every single time we read the Bible, every single time we discern our gifts and where God is calling us to serve. That is the powerful invitation and reality that's being experienced when we read this passage that we're being invited into. What are your gifts? And then one final thing, and we can open up for questions and comments. This first phrase, going back to it, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. That implies that we have some authority over our hearts. Do we not? We have some authority over our bodies, over the things that we say yes to, that we say no to. And we have to be wary of the times where we get a little bit helpless, we feel like, oh my gosh, I don't know what God is doing in my life, or the devil's really attacking me. And Jesus is saying, you have some power here. You have, a, you have free will. You have your own effort and strength. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Because suffering will happen in all of our lives. But whether or not we choose to suffer in the midst of it is up to us. We can experience suffering as a grace, as a gift even, which sounds very bizarre, but if you know Catholic teaching, it's not at all. We will all experience on paper suffering, but whether or not you and I actually experience it, feel it as though it is suffering, that's up to us. And that applies to any of the things that happen to us in life. And what follows from that is the promise that when we are invited into intimacy with God, no amount of human suffering, no amount of human experience will ever cast a shadow over that or outweigh the goodness that is promised to us. Any questions about this reading or any reflections, things that stood out to you or that you're curious about? I'm sweating. Oh, there we go. Yes. Praise God. Was that it? Oh, cool. Oh, well, good. Awesome. Yeah, Daniel. Do you want to say just kind of not? related to the gospel reading that we read over of just I just have this friend that's uh, he's a Protestant but he's like very he's like a biblical scholar and we usually have like theological talks and um, when I like go over like passages like um, like verse 11 where it mentions works and stuff like that and I like try to prove like oh no, like, it's not full of day he always like refers to NIV as the most accurate, accurate uh, translation. And I just don't know how to like combat that or like what to say against saying, "Oh yeah, I guess NIV is the most accurate of translation." Is that actually true? No. So my question would be, why? Who said that? Like, show me why it's more accurate. 
you know. But um, the best verse for that is James 2.24, because there's only one place in all of Scripture, uh, I think whether you have a very accurate translation or not, in all of Scripture where the, the phrase faith alone is used, and that's in uh, 2.24 where it says of James, see how a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So use that. <laughs> use that with charity. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's not the most accurate translation, you know. So whether you have a dynamic equivalence translation or formal equivalence translation, it's not, to my knowledge, anywhere to the top of the list of either. So I'm interested as to why he would think that. So, yeah, I would ask questions into why that is. Like, what scholars use it? You know, where is there uh, translational evidence? Can you give me examples in two different passages of how they're uh, translated, you know? But um, I've never heard someone claim that about that particular translation. Yeah. Thanks. As long as he's not using the King James Version, because it's beautifully written, but the translation is garbage. It's, it's beautiful poetry, but it's so, so inaccurate. So he's doing a little better. <laughs> anyway, yes, Lynn. So in the Catholic tradition, we seek to use the very best translations. Um, and so we use the New American Bible. This is what we use for um, proclaiming the word at Mass. Uh, and it's the best what's called a dynamic equivalence translation, which means it, it uh, communicates the meaning of the text in the most accurate way. So it might not be the most literal translation because there's some turns of phrase or anachronisms that when you translate them word for word make no sense. Um, so it's the best dynamic translation where it gets to the meaning but still maintaining the best accuracy of the text. Uh, and then we use the, uh, the NRSV or the RSV Catholic edition. Um, and we, that's a very good formal equivalence text, especially the RSV Catholic edition. I think it's the second edition now. The um, Great Adventure Bible, if you have that, is that translation. Um, and that's the best formal equivalence translation that I'm aware of uh, that does the best at word for word. And when it doesn't want to translate word for word because it makes no sense, it will tell you in the footnote what it actually is. But yeah, so, uh, and there's only about a handful I've only really heard two or three, but a handful I know that are approved translations to use in Catholic theology because they're vetted for accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Other questions? I thought I saw a hand up over there. No? Yes. Um, I'm wondering how this um, getting to know the Father and the Apostles seemed a little confused. How does this, at this time in Jesus's life, fit in with the whole, uh, with the Trinity and knowledge of the Holy Trinity? Yeah, so um, the, the word Trinity is not used anywhere in Scripture. Um, there are many passages in the Old Testament where there are references to encounters with God that have separate titles or even figures associated with that. So, for instance, the three strangers who come and greet Abraham when Abraham and Sarah are barren and without children. Uh, this is around Genesis chapter 12 through 15, somewhere in there, 12 through 17. Three strangers come, and they are addressed or recognized by Abraham as being the angel of the Lord. And so they're kind of addressed as three, but all three of them being divine, one of whom kind of takes the lead and speaks. Um, so there's three figures in the Old Testament or titles for God you will often see. Um, Yahweh, or the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and the spirit of the Lord. And yet all of them are treated as though they are divine. They'll have the same comments about them, like, I just saw the Lord, and so no one can see God and live. You know, there's this kind of fear about approaching God and all his wonder and all his power. So they're all kind of, every title is treated that way, as if they are the one divine God. But there's use of these different names. But the Trinity is not ever explicitly believed by Hebrews, um, or is it ever explicitly kind of stated in the Old Testament. Uh, as when Jesus becomes man, he is the full revelation of God. He is revealing that there is a Trinity. You know, he is the Son revealing that he is united with the Father and that he's going to send the Spirit. And that's kind of the most explicit that we have, and then it gets more developed throughout the rest of the New Testament. Um, so at this point, he has already talked about, like, when the disciples approach him and say, how are we to pray? He gives them the Our Father. 
you know, you're, this is how you are to pray our father. And you all know in the our father, the word for father is Abba, which means like Papa or daddy. So it's not the sense in uh, some beliefs of the Jews at the time that God was this distant, powerful entity that you could not approach or were never going to be worthy of. Like you don't call a pillar of fire dada unless you're like a crazy person, you know, like um, that's just not something you do. And so to be revealed that God wants to be that intimate is, is showing that Jesus is kind of unveiling a bit people's misunderstandings about God. So it's starting to be understood. The Trinity in the sense that we know it now is not fully understood theologically until the uh, ending of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century, after a series of councils combating certain heresies about who Jesus was and what the nature of the Holy Spirit was. So it took a long time for the church to fully agree and have language to explain and address all of the heresies or misunderstandings about the Trinity that are revealed by Jesus and the pages of the New Testament. So it took a very long time. There is evidence of it foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It is, in our sense, like retrospectively, explicitly stated in the New Testament, but they would have had no way to conceptualize that. So it took a while for them to realize how are the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit interrelated if we are not believing in three separate gods, but one God who is three persons revealing himself in three different ways throughout salvation history. So yeah, it took a, took a long time. Yeah, great question. Yeah, Ian. Uh, so you mentioned that phrase, right? God participated in our humanity so we could participate in his divinity. Yes. And this might be like a very platform Catholic question, but I don't answer my question anyways. Um, is the way that, you know, Jesus lived and then died on earth, was that the only way he could fully participate in our humanity in order to save us? Hmm. Like, could it have happened a different way? It's like, it doesn't matter, this one already happened, but like, could it have happened a different way or no? Like, that's the only way that he could have fully participated in our humanity, our experience, hmm. and show us how it was supposed to be done. So I'll say yes and no. So um, it could have happened differently in the sense that different events could have played out um, for him in the way that he instituted, let's say, the new Passover and the mass and the way that he reconciled sin on behalf of humanity. Because sin is a human problem. God couldn't just snap his fingers and fix it. We'd still have our sinful nature. It wouldn't really do anything. So we have to fix the problem. But the, fall, the problem is we're sinful. We're imperfect. So the only way to fix it, God had to become one of us perfect, like us in every way but sin, to die on our behalf, to offer himself on our behalf. That's how he chose to do it, as a sacrifice for our sins. And he chose to do that very sacrificially in the language of the temple, the imagery of the temple. So there was intentionality in that. It was as if Jesus' unique mission was to die sacrificially on our behalf as the sacrificial lamb in a new Passover to be celebrated in the Eucharist perpetually. That seems very, very intentional in, in what he did. How that death would have come about could have happened many different ways. What specific signs he did could have been many different ones. Um, we don't really know. It's an area of speculative theology. But because he became man, we know that he would have, as a result, had to have been born, had to have endured and lived through the breath of human experience, emotion, pain, hurt, joy, sorrow, anger, fear, um, everything but sin. Still experiencing temptation, obviously, but everything but sin. And he would have died. And then, as a result of dying, he would have risen from the dead to prove that he was who he says he was. But the particular ways in which those things came about could have been different. Yeah, but we don't know. Yes? Yes. Holy Michael? I don't know. I wasn't aware that that was the original translation of it. Um, the, the reason that we, might, that we would call him saint is the understanding that everyone in heaven is a saint uh, because they are purified and holy and because the archangels specifically take on human or embodied kind of um, visual personages on earth. They represent themselves as people. Uh, in physical way, we can approach them as saints. We can depict them or have kind of more human depictions of them than we would other angels. Like if you look in the description of the Bible, you may have seen this online, like biblical, uh, authentically biblical images of angels. 
and seraphim are like just a series of wings, like six wings. Uh, thrones are covered in eyes. Like they're pretty horrifying images. Um, of, or no, uh, cherubim are covered in eyes. Thrones are like spinning wheels. So, uh, but the archangels themselves, they often appear, appear as humans in human form. And just like any holy individuals who have died and have gone to heaven or in communion with God in heaven, that we have some revealed knowledge of they are there, including the archangels, we can address them as saint. So I don't know when they were formally declared or canonized. There's probably a day in recent church history since Vatican I where they were given a particular feast day, the feast day of the archangels, Raphael, uh, Gabriel, and Michael, the three that are named in our canon. Uh, it's in September or October, I believe. Um, or November, uh, it's somewhere in the fall. Um, so whenever that was, I would imagine it was probably around then. Uh, because if they're called, if he's called holy in that prayer, probably wasn't a tradition to call him saint just yet. But that's why theologically it would be permissible to call those particular angels saints. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah, Chris. I'm still kind of stuck on like where Jesus says that he'll do these works as also like greater. Yes. I wonder like, why have we have why have we seen greater works? Have we not? <laughs> so the, the example that I use, a very simple example, is that in Jesus' three years of ministry, and all the miracles and the works that he did, uh, fully in relationship with the Holy Spirit, we read in Acts chapter 1 that he grew the church to 120 disciples. That was how many were there in the early church. After he died, rose from the dead, but before Pentecost. Pentecost Sunday happens, or the day of Pentecost happens. The disciples are uh, receiving the Holy Spirit. Peter goes that day and he preaches a sermon to the crowds. 3,000 people are baptized in one day. So the church has now grown by 2,500% in one day by virtue of the Holy Spirit working in one person, amplifying the work of Jesus beyond anything that Jesus was allowed himself to do in this life. Does that make sense? the word or like saving souls or like miracles like yes yes and these things happen these things still happen like there are probably over I know there are at least 10,000 I've heard there are over 40,000 different canonized saints in the Catholic Church and since the 12th century there's been a formal process in which you declare a saint and what that entails is that two miracles need to be attributed to the intercession of that saint after they have died. They have to be dead for five years, and then you need to start asking that particular saint to pray for a miracle. That miracle is investigated by secular and scientific authorities to communicate or to prove that it is immediate, it is lasting, meaning it lasts for at least a year, and it is in no other way explainable by medicine, science, or any other treatment they received. And if there are at least 10,000 different saints, let's say conservatively half of those have been canonized since the 12th century, but it's probably far more. That's at least 10,000 documented miracles that have un otherwise been unable to be disproven by all scientific and medical analysis. That is far more abundant than the miracles we see in the New Testament. And so when we have the ability of the Holy Spirit to even ask for those things, I mean, that's just saintly intercession. That doesn't include the fact that we pray for one another. The fact that we are able to perform miracles, that we are able to enact or invite supernatural experiences of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in other people. This is what is commonly called in the church charisms of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard this before? That everyone is given charisms of the Holy Spirit. You all have them somewhere in your spiritual back pocket. You have charisms of the Holy Spirit that you were given by virtue of your baptism and especially at your confirmation. They're unique gifts that God has given you to go and promote and defend the Catholic faith out in the world as a disciple of Jesus Christ that bear supernatural fruit. There's a difference between a charism and a gift or a talent. A gift or a talent is something that you could do every day and you could burn yourself out very easily. Gifts and talents, we can often use them for ourselves to make money or you know, to uh, gain the attention of others. Charisms are unique in that they are always compelled to be offered for others. They bear this supernatural fruit. Others witness that. They may come to us and say, you really have a gift for X. You really have an ability to do this that other people don't have. And it's really 
It's given me this experience, or I experience this from you in a really powerful way. Every single charism is healing. Every single charism is evangelizing. And every single charism is rooted in charity for others. And there's actual formal assessments you can take online to discern after you've had some experience in the church and in ministry and, you know, in just life living out your faith, what some of those charisms might be. And I believe there are 24. There's a list of 24 charisms. There are two others that you have to discern in a different way, but there are 24 charisms. uh, And it usually comes up with your top three to five. And then you can use those to reflect, have I seen evidence of these in my life? Have they borne supernatural fruit? Do people come and tell me Like, have they experienced really, like, uh, I don't know, experiences of goodness, truth, or beauty as a result of me living these out? Everybody has them. Every single person in the body of Christ has them and has a unique combination of them, lives them out in a unique way. And so for those of you who know me and my, you know, what I do here, it won't surprise you that my charisms are music, discernment of spirits, teaching, knowledge, and evangelism and wisdom. Those are my top six. And that is very evident in the kinds of positions that I find myself in, the things that I am asked to do and that I feel called and compelled to do. And not for my own glory, but for God's glory, but people will often communicate to me that, wow, I felt the Holy Spirit when you were teaching. And oftentimes when they say that, the first thought in my head is, I have no idea what I just said. I have no clue what you're talking about. And it's usually the times when I leave like a Bible study or a talk and I'm like, that was the worst thing I think I've ever said. And then a couple weeks will go by and multiple people will come up to me like, dude, that was like life-changing. I was like, are you kidding me? That one? Like, I've given such better other ones. And then when I go and I like, oh, I nailed that. Nobody says anything. You know? And I'm, <laughs> So it's clear to me in those moments that the Holy Spirit is working. So maybe you've had those moments in your own life where you're almost like having an out-of-body experience, watching yourself doing something in an interaction with someone, you're really in the zone, you're really in the mode, like maybe it's something to do with your job or a skill that you have that you just really zero in on. It energizes you, it gives you life, it doesn't uh, burn you out. Those are keys uh, pointing you in the direction of what your charisms might be. And, And that can be sources where you can begin to maybe discern what are the gifts God has given me? How can I use those Uh, to offer to the church, to offer to others. And they all have different recommendations about how might you live this out in ministry, out in the world. So there's great assessments out there. One of them, I'll tell you two ways you can discern this. Well, three ways. One, you can do this with a person uh, who's skilled in that way. Um, But two uh, ways that anybody can do online, uh, Catherine of Siena Institute has a whole program on the charisms online and an online assessment that you can take. Catherine of Siena Institute, they're called and gifted program. And then a new ministry um, that I just came across called Many Parts Ministries. If you know Pink Salt Riot, Jill, who runs that Instagram account and that online shop, it's a Catholic shop, she started this other ministry, which is like a calling she really feels to help people discern their charism. So Catherine of Siena Institute and Many Parts Ministries. Many Parts you can take online. When you go home tonight, it costs $9 to take the assessment. Uh, and you get a full personalized booklet and printout of what your charisms might be. And then it helps to sit down with a spiritual director or someone who has some experience with this and work through them with you. Because just because you score high on one on your test doesn't mean that it's a charism. It might just be a gift or a talent. So you have to sit down and discern these things with someone. But these tools are out there, and they can be powerful pointers to how these supernatural things that God wants to work in and through you uh, can can uniquely be done by you in the world. So I really encourage you, if you've never done anything like that, or if it's been a while, a few years, these things change over time. Um, the charisms that you have, uh, you'll start to discern some are just gifts and other ones will rise to the surface that you were surprised by, that you maybe had a middle score on. So uh, continue to discern, take an assessment, work it out with somebody, pray through it, and see see where the Lord might be leading you as a result. Because powerful things can happen. Uh, Many parts ministries. Many parts ministries. That one I think is the easiest to access on your own. Catherine of Siena Institute, you might have to like join a program, set up an account. It's all free, I'm pretty sure, but it it might be a little less user-friendly. I'm a a instructor for that, so I only know that end of it. I don't know the person taking it and the user end. (laughs) Um, So many parts ministries, nine bucks, you can take the assessment and you get a full like 16 page personalized booklet that gives you all your results immediately. Yes? Uh, potentially in the future, there's been a lot of interest in that. So yeah, the Catherine of Siena Institute runs a workshop called Cult and Gifted, which we've done several times here in the past, but before the pandemic, it's been probably eight, seven or eight years since we've had one here. But um, yeah, 
If we do an in-person one, I will tell you at this Bible study. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. So the general instruction of the Roman Missal is the all of the text that is uh, used at Mass. So it's readings from Scripture, but also all of the prayers, ninety percent of which come elsewhere from elsewhere in Scripture. Um, we always have an Old Testament reading. So before uh, before Vatican II, we had an Old Testament reading, a Psalm, and a Gospel reading. The Old Testament reading, uh, and sometimes in the Easter season, it was a New Testament reading. And the Gospel reading are always related. So they always have some kind of similar thematic content. In the three-year cycle on Sundays, um, we go through a three-year cycle. So if you go to Sunday Mass every week for three years, you'll hear like 60% of the Bible. The first year of that cycle, we're predominantly in the Gospel of Matthew. That's year A. Year B, the second year, we're predominantly in Mark. Year C, we're predominantly in Luke. And then it cycles back. During the Easter season and during special feasts and liturgical seasons, we have the Gospel of John every year, just sprinkled in throughout. Um, and so the readings are chosen based on what particular liturgical season that we're in, and then they go in a sequence, and then we hit the next liturgical season, they'll start a new sequence somewhere. Um, and then again, the first reading is, is not random, but it's not necessarily chronological. It's meant to further illuminate themes or details from the gospel. When After Vatican II, there was a push to help people understand Scripture more readily, and so they started incorporating another reading in Scripture, the second reading, the New Testament reading. And that kind of is chronological. So right now, for the past several weeks, we've been in 1 Peter, and we've just been reading chunks of 1 Peter. And uh, whatever anyone might tell you, if you're ever at Mass, you're like, wow, there was that word used in all the readings, and it was really like well-aligned. There's no planning whatsoever as to correlation between the second reading and everything else. It just happens by accident sometimes. But you're just randomly given a second reading, and then it just kind of goes through most of the New Testament. Yeah. And then during daily Masses, there's a different cycle that's used. So there's, a, I think, cycle one and cycle two. It's a two-year cycle. But that's how they choose. Yeah. Great. Any uh, final points, questions, things resonating with you from the Scripture? Yeah. Very unpleasant. Click on question. Great. I think it kind of deals with the theology or how you can come to Christ. I'll find a way to incorporate it. <laughs> uh, or maybe the church that you've done research with has a stance. But is math discovered or was it invented by humans? Oh my gosh. <laughs> was math discovered or was it invented yeah. by humans? Is this just the way that humans have? you know, figured out how to reason about the world, or was it something that, like, God sure. us to interpret? Yeah, I mean, numbers are ways in which humans have realized things they observe in the world and can track and compute things repeatedly to explain the natural order in which God has infused himself in creation. So, you know the phrase in philosophy and theology, grace builds upon nature? I've never heard that before. So I think it comes from Thomas Aquinas, that... The, the, the supernatural evidence of God or the reality of God builds upon the natural order that we see around us. And so uh, one way of saying this is if the Bible had never been written, nature would be our primary evangelist. We would look around and simply be able to see evidence of God. So in one sense, huh? Yes, we would see, we would see evidence of that. It's one of the ways in which God reveals himself. So um, math, in a sense, what is both revealed by God and invented because we have elements of it that we have created in order to understand what we observe about the world. But they are things that God infused and built into creation. Yeah. That makes it like the primitives he created and we're just interpreting it. Yes. So in a way, that's why it's kind of both that. Well, Correct. That's what we call math for how we interpret what's going on. That's what we call math. Uh, yeah. Cool. Same thing with physics. Yeah. Yes. I always tell people like science, psychology, anything that you learn is a model based on like discovery of how we want to model things. Yeah. So even theology, it's like things are revealed as we understand things more. So same thing with math. It's like we start in some primary aspect, but obviously we could have modeled it some other way, but it's consistent. And so we build on top of it. So like we thought the world was flat, right? So we built on top of that model, we debunked that model, threw that model out, and then we started another model. 
And so then we learn about physics, we learn about like gravity, we learn about how gravity is actually just like time and space. I don't know. Basically, long story. No, you're good. But it's an interesting, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is like one of those is cereal a soup kind of questions. Um, one final thing, Jared. No, I was going to think of a pun or something clever, but um, what I can do is recap because our time is up, and uh, and that is. A reminder that uh, this first phrase, do not let your hearts be troubled. A reminder, we have authority over our hearts and our minds. We have the ability to discern and determine what we allow to bother us, what we allow to affect us, how we allow good things in, bad things in, whatever it might be. And we also are being invited simultaneously into an intimate relationship with God. And so I would encourage you to discern this week, how is God pursuing you? How is God inviting you into deeper relationship with him? And how might you be able to discern and illuminate the areas in your life where he's given you unique gifts and charism so that you can live out the supernatural calling in the world, not to glorify yourself, but to bring glory to God and help others to know that great gift. If we were all a thirst for water in the desert and one of us find a, found a well and it had plentiful water enough for all of us, how cruel would we have to be to not share the source of life and salvation with everyone else. And that's the premise, the invitation that we have in sharing the good news and the supernatural fruit of a relationship with Jesus Christ. How cruel do we have to be not to share that gift with others and to allow that supernatural reality to live in them as well. So let's discern this week how God is calling us to do that, who he might be calling us to share that with. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God, you are so good. Thank you for the gift of this time, the gift of this conversation, all of the different directions it went in, Lord. We know that your Holy Spirit is guiding us and helping us to understand and see that you are in all things. That no matter what happens in our life, we need not despair. We need not let our hearts be troubled. We need to be reminded of the stories of Scripture, the stories of our own lives, how you have acted, how you have interceded, how you have intervened always for our good to lead us here to this place to be reminded of the intimacy you invite us into, to be reminded of the supernatural fruits that we can bear out in the world if we uniquely live out our calling. So help us this week, Lord, to discern who are you calling us to be? What unique gifts have, gifts have you given each of us? How are you calling us to be the church, the body of Christ out in the world today? Give us the strength and the grace we need to discern that and to live out our faith with boldness, with joy, and with zeal this week as we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.